sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. The whole idea that if everyone's civil and they stay on topic and we have a good conversation and it's generally interesting and therefore it was a good meeting in the context of a sales meeting, on top of that, we seem to get along, they seem to like us, you know, those things make it a good meeting. Well, no, did you create a list (laughs) of decision criteria that would help move this thing forward? Did you create a list of what the problems are, you know, what are they encountering that's causing them trouble? Did you identify new ways of thinking that expand their whole horizon? Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Ann Latham. Ann's the president of Uncommon Clarity, Inc., and author of a book titled The Power of Clarity, Unleash the True Potential of Workplace Productivity, Confidence, and Empowerment. In our conversation today, Anne and I talk about the importance of clarity, uncommon clarity, as she calls it, in all of our communications. And we talk about the costs and the negative consequences that flow from a lack of clarity. I love this quote from Anne's book. Quote, you can't see what you don't understand, but what you, already, but what you think you already understand, you'll fail to notice. Unquote. And that's a trap that sellers fall into all the time. So we dig into that. We also talk about one of the impacts of disclarity, as Anne calls it, which is an increase in the percent of time that you spend on non-productive tasks, like sellers who spend only a third of their time actually selling, and how a lot of that non-sales time flows from the lack of clarity in setting priorities. We also get into why motivation and engagement are a consequence of clarity, not a prerequisite. And why the moments that matter in sales require what Ann calls clarity in the moment. And we'll talk about what that is. So stick around, all of that and much, much more. But before we get to Ann, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it. You could also leave us a review. Give us your feedback about how we're doing. Thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Ann, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andy. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. So tell us where you're joining from. I'm calling in from Peterborough, New Hampshire. Peterborough, New Hampshire. Gosh, I've been through there a long, long time ago. (laughs) So a whole different story. So uh, tell us a little bit about you and and the work you do. Well, my company's called Uncommon Clarity, and I've had this 
habit of creating clarity for a long time now. <laughs> that's why I've written the book called The Power of Clarity, and before that, The Clarity Papers. And my passion is all about helping people be clearer, and not just in communication, but also how they think and how they work together so they can be more productive and they can accomplish more together faster and get better results. Okay, all all highly desirable. So how did you happen upon this this idea of clarity as, as sort of your animating purpose? Yeah, well, before I quit my corporate job, which was back in 2004, I asked all of my colleagues and the supervisors I'd reported to, what is it that I do extremely well that is most unusual? Hmm. And the responses I got were all along these lines that I – take large quantities of information and extract the kernel, or I bring a group to the core issues and help them resolve their you know, misunderstandings and find the, the common purpose so that we can agree to move forward on, on various things, make better decisions. But the, mm -hmm. all the feedback was along those lines. So I called my company Uncommon Clarity, and I've been writing about clarity ever since. Well, how do you think you, you sort of develop that power? Uh, you know, when I talk to my brothers, I think it goes way back because <laughs> <laughs> they weren't as clear. <laughs> but I was also a math major, and so my okay. always, you know, very logical and getting to the essential details so that I can solve problems. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we're going to talk about your book called The Power of Clarity, Unleash the Power of True Potential of Workplace Productivity, Confidence, and Empowerment. So you've written before about clarity, but what is it that you're doing differently in this book? Well, in this book, I'm really trying to lay it all out there and get people to make clarity priority so I can change the way people think and communicate and act. And so I start off with trying to convince people with all kinds of examples of how <laughs> unclear we really are because we don't really know how unclear we are. We, every, we always think we're just not quite clear enough, but the reality is we're really pretty unclear a lot of the time. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, the, the examples you give in the book, uh, yeah, trigger lots of thoughts about, oh, yeah, I do that, <laughs> or I've done that. And, and you know, one of the, the great examples, I think, is, is, you know, a supervisor telling somebody that works for them, hey, please, or maybe the other way around even, is somebody giving something to a boss and that they want approval on, and they say, please review. Right, exactly. And when you say, please review, you're giving no direction. There's no clarity at all about what you need out of that review. You know, what are you looking for? I could probably give you a list of about 50 things that you could look for. You know? Yeah, you do, yeah. Well, so but why is that, though? So as I was thinking through this, it's like, let's take the example we talked about, uh, uh, somebody you know, giving something to the boss to, to get approval on. And they say, oh, yeah, please review. It's because they're afraid to be clear? Because like, they're afraid it's, it's asking for something? I mean, what's, what's the thing that, that makes people so reserved? So we sort of use what you talk about, these treadmill verbs, but which are really passive language, right? Yes. Yeah, well, and, and I think there's really two things there. One is that I didn't go into my corporate life talking about, you know, please review and please report. And that wasn't my language, but that's the language we learned in the corporate world. So everyone talks about communicating and sharing and 
and reviewing and reporting. And we used to get things done outside of the corporate world, you know, outside of the business world without using those words. We did things, we accomplished things. So I think in part we've learned this language that is unclear. And secondly, I, I just don't think that people are, are wired to be very specific and that we've learned to be very specific. Well, I was going to ask that question because you, you certainly address that in the book that, that perhaps our default state is, is, I think you call it disclarity. But I, just, I, don't know, I was thinking of examples like kids. You know, are, are kids, when we're younger, are we more direct or less? Do we learn the sort of passive language and attempt to sort of, I don't know, ingratiate ourselves or, or make something that we perceive to be difficult less difficult? But we just make it more obtuse in the process. Well, that's a really good question, Andy. You know, I, I don't know enough about child development. <laughs> I just know that most of the adults don't end up very clear. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I'm this sort of, it, it was really interesting reading it because it was, you know, I have this belief that, uh, and, you know, this audience is a sales audience. So we're going to, there are lots of sales parallels in in the book. Yeah, we'll, we'll draw out. But, um yeah, I feel like we assume, we make this assumption when we bring people into the workplace that they sort of have these basic human skills. Uh, yeah, how to connect with another person, how to demonstrate empathy, how to, how to be clear, right? Um, and we don't. And then it's like we wonder, well, why, why aren't people acting this way? Yeah. So they, they sort of learn this language and they, they put on an act. I mean, this is what we see in sales all the time is people they have this image of what a seller is and they, they think they need to act that way and use that language. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the first things you do when you work for a company is you start talking in that language about, you know, will you please review my memo? I mean, I didn't even know what a memo was before I got one of those jobs, you know. But yeah, it's, it's even worse than the mimicking vocabulary. I've had consulting clients where they mimic the speech patterns of the CEO. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it goes it goes pretty deep. So, I like you describe clarity sort of as a, I call it as a mindset, right? I mean, I think if you uh, books I've read on mindset and authors had on the show about mindset is that you know it's just like yeah, you know, Carol Dweck's growth and fixed mindset. They really reside on opposite ends of a continuum, and you describe a, a continuum between clear uncommon clarity and disclarity. Uh, so, describe. What, first of all, what disclarity is, what uncommon clarity is, and then how do we assess where we sit on the continuum? Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I, I introduced the idea of that spectrum because I think it's so critical to bring some dimension to that because we always think, well, we're just not quite clear enough, and we're just a little ways away from this point called clarity. Mm -hmm. If you think of uncommon clarity on one end, and that's where you know exactly what you're trying to accomplish. You know how you're going to do it. You know with whom you have to work. You know how well it has to be done. And you're also able to focus. You're not trying to do 10 things at once. When you're in that state, that's when you can cruise with confidence and be ultra productive. Mm -hmm. That's that state of uncommon clarity. And the reality is, if you, if you look at a lot of data in your own personal experience, you probably know that's like two hours a day in the normal companies, workforce life, you know, uh, if, if that, if right. that exactly, yeah. if that, yeah. and that's, that's the high end. And that's what I taught, refer to as the, you know, the, the idea of the cognitive uptime as oh, opposed right. to 
the physical or, or production uptime, which we want to be ex, you know, exceedingly high, but when it comes to cognitive uptime, we're more on the disclarity end of the spectrum where we don't know exactly what we're trying to accomplish. We're kind of fishing, we're wandering around, we don't know who to work with necessarily, we're being distracted by lots of different you know, priorities and shifting priorities and emails flowing in and the piles of stuff on our desk. So that if you have someone, for instance, back to your example of when someone asks you to please review something and you give them no clarity at all about what you're supposed to be looking for, you know, is it grammar, is it punctuation, Mm -hmm. is it flow, is it credibility, is it accuracy, you're way down on the disclarity end of the spectrum. Yeah, well, I mean, I... I love the example you give in the book about because it, it sometimes gets overused. This this idea, especially in sales, about sales being sort of analogous to a production process or a physical production process where you're manufacturing uh, a good of some sort. But I think it's really relevant because, <laughs> as you talk about, is is hey, if there's somebody that was managing an assembly line, and yeah, you know, there's only up and operating in a continuous state 20% of the day, well, the person in charge of that would have been fired years ago. Yes. Right? Yes. Because the manufacturing, and I've worked in a manufacturing facility, a meat processing, where we, yeah, you got behind, the line stopped. You did not want to be the person that caused the line to stop. Right. Uh, union workers, uh, you know, peace bonus, peace work bonuses at stake, and so on. It was, it was a big deal. And yet we tolerate so much of that uh, in business, but specifically in sales. I mean, sales, you talked about sort of the 80-20, that maybe only 20% of the day is actually productive. I mean, the figures that have come out for decades about sales and have been reinforced with more recent studies is that sellers spend on average only about 30% of their day actually engaged in something related to the act of selling. Right. It's terrible. It's terrible. And yet, it's just the way it is. There's nothing we can do about it. It's horrible. So the opportunity for improvement is enormous if we were boost, if we only doubled our cognitive uptime to maybe, you know, 40%. Yeah. Well, I mean, you give the example of, you know, the production process, you're moving physical pieces down a line uh, where, you know, value is added to them and they become more whole, let's say, or ready to sell. I mean, it's not too dissimilar in sales is, is you know, this, the cognitive objects you're moving are, hey, how am I going to help this buyer understand what the problem is and help them move through their process to be able to make a decision? Right. Right. And, and so you have to be able to be really clear about, you know, what are, what are the steps each step of the way that's going to get that buyer closer to being able to make a decision? One. And then how yeah. do you get to each one of those? Right. Right. Well, I, I, I uh, yeah, I want to get to that because you talk about that in the context of, of uh, meetings and so on. But, but this lack of clarity around what your job is, is to me, it's like the root, the root issue is, you know, for salespeople, it's like, well, hey, go get an order. But that's not really the job. Right, that's that's an outcome, yeah. but but doesn't really help them really understand what it is they're supposed to be doing. That's right. And too often, what we do is we'll you'll sit down at your desk and start. You know, let's. I got to get to work now. I got to start making calls, and you don't really stop and think it through. What is the outcome I hope to achieve today, and what's the process to get there, and what's that a part of in terms of the larger process? 
so that you attain the real goal, which is to bring in the business. Yeah, and you, you talk in the book about the costs of a lack of clarity. Yeah, obviously, <laughs> the big number was only 20% of your, your work hours are, are productive. But it, it made me think of, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sort of made me think about uh, David Allen's book, Getting Things Done, mm-hmm. where to me that was all about clarity because you know, he gives the example of, well, you think that the changing a light bulb is the task, right, that you're, that you're going about, but really not, right? If you want clarity on what you're doing, is it's not just changing a light bulb. You have to see what type of bulb you need. You need to see whether you have them. Do you have to go buy the bulb? There's all these piece parts to it um, that if you really have clarity on the task, you understand, but if you don't, you're sort of going to just be oblivious to them. And you, yeah. You know, and you had a great quote in the book is, you know, you can't see what you don't understand, but what you think you already understand, you'll fail to notice. And to me, that was like one example of that. Right. Yeah. And, and your example there with the light bulb, I mean, that's the kind of specificity we need. And, you know, big accomplishments are made up of a series of little accomplishments. And every little accomplishment is achieved through that level of specificity. I also give the example in the book about sitting in a meeting with um, an executive team where I was supposed to just wait for my turn and they were diving into an urgent issue they needed to discuss first. And they were just diving in and talking and talking and I interrupted because I was going crazy and said, wait a minute, right now do you realize you're talking about five different decisions and two different plans simultaneously? And, you know, of course, they just glared at me like, who, who is she to be interrupting us because right. it wasn't my turn yet? <laughs> and, and they were just dagger eyes. And then I enumerated the five decisions and the two plans. And it's like the light bulbs came on. And it was immediately obvious what order you had to make those five decisions in and where the plans fit in. And instead of talking about this urgent issue for an hour and then probably having to schedule another meeting, they made those five decisions and made their plans that they needed right off the bat in 15 minutes and they were done. Mm-hmm. You know, but instead we just kind of dive in and talk about five things at once. It gets back to that whole idea of the, you know, please review. You yeah. Know, there's so many different directions a conversation can go, can go or a review can go, if, you, if you're in a room with 15 or five, take five people, and they're dedicated, earnest, determined people, and you bring up a, a general topic, I guarantee that they could come up with, you know, 50 ways to take the conversation. Yeah. And the more vested and smart and, you know, <laughs> interested they are, the more directions they can take that conversation. Well, one of the examples you get, I thought, we see that this is perhaps most destructive, though, is this lack of clarity is, you know, people in positions of power being imprecise. And you tell the story of Sally and Rob, your client Rob, where, you know, Sally drew up a list of her responsibilities. And Rob was dissatisfied with Sally, and she drew up a list of her responsibilities at your request. And not one of them on the list was that area of priority for Rob. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's hopeless. <laughs> yeah, and it, I again, this you see time and time and time again. Yeah, even in the sales world. I mean, again, people think that that's it's they know what their priority is, and it's always this big thing instead of the series of smaller tasks that that to your point have to be addressed. If you talk about clarity, and I 
I think another word for people to think about is with with intent, right? Yeah. I mean, if you have intent about these smaller tasks that comprise the bigger task, um, then yeah, you're going to get the outcomes along the way that you need. That's right. That's right. And and you need to be really specific about what each of those outcomes is, and you need to be sure it's an outcome and not an activity. Which yeah, gets us back to a big area of sales, which is you know managers who are obsessed with activity as opposed to outcome, right? Right. Hey, I need you to make 50 calls today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what do you really need? Yes. Right? Yeah. Maybe you need five five new leads from that. Well, let's break that down differently. Why? Yeah, we're so stuck on this, uh, you know, the metrics of activities as opposed to outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not just the managers that do it to us either. <laughs> you know, we if you've ever had a to-do list where – you are struggling to check things off and you rewrite the to-do list so that you can check off activities <laughs> that add up to what you're supposed to accomplish and you want to check things off the list, but the reality is you're getting no closer to actually getting the thing done. You might be getting closer, but the, the, getting the final thing done, the real outcome is what matters. Right. Well, that's why that, that production worker, that's a, a metaphor so so powerful. We don't, and we don't think about it enough. I mean, I, I extend it further, which is outside the scope of your book, but it, it relates is that you know, we have this issue in sales today, especially in software sales, where the percentage, the win rate, the percentage of deals that are closed from the most highly qualified opportunities is pretty low across, across the industry. Um, and if you put it in the context of a production yeah. uh, environment, <laughs> You know, if you were making products, only one of every five worked, that'd be an issue. That'd be a serious issue. You're right. But, but we have sales leaders that are putting sellers out in the field who can only perform at that level. Exactly. They don't have the tools. They don't have the knowledge. They don't have the process. They don't understand what are the steps to get to the result, which is the sale. What's the, yeah. what's the uh, customer's decision process? They don't necessarily even know who's involved in the decision. Oftentimes, yeah. And we'll when we get to that when you talk about two different two different decision making types. Um, get to that. I wanted to touch on one thing that I thought was a great term that I'm going to start using because I loved it. Is is you know, we talk about non production employees? Typically, we talk about knowledge workers these days. Mm-hmm. But I love that you coined the phrase interaction workers, and I really think that's that's genius because. That's what people's days increasingly are made up of, is, is interacting with other people, working through other people to get things done. Right. And that's more true now than ever. We have, yeah. Things are more complicated. We have to work with more people. There are more interactions. And you were, you know, you were asking earlier, why aren't we wired for this? And why is this so hard for us? Why aren't we specific? And one example that comes to mind is, is just the idea of decisions. Making decisions is arguably the most important activity or task of a knowledge worker or a manager or anyone who's in the cognitive zone as opposed to a production worker. And yet, mm-hmm. if you ask a room full of people what their process is for making decisions, you will get more answers than there are people in the room. And, oh, and, absolutely. Yeah, this is the most important activity, and we don't have a tried-and-true, well-known, shared process for making simple decisions. Well, and yes, <laughs> and for people who are in sales, 
who think that their buyers have these well-oiled, well-laid-out processes for making decisions, yeah, they don't. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, here don't. we are, interaction workers who are interacting with our customers, and the most important thing we're going to do together is make a decision, and we have no shared process for doing that. <laughs> it's sort of a recipe for chaos. Yeah, well, it is. But the thing that, that we do to compound it is we think that the buyer is going to operate according to our process. Yes, that's a good one. <laughs> and, yeah, every sales organization has a sales process, right? And if you go back and, and look at their customers' buying processes, they're not the same at all. No. No. Nor should they be. Yet there's this huge resistance in sales to saying, well, maybe we need to modify even the language we use about our processes to align with how customers are looking at this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's essential. And, and, and you can help your customers think things through more clearly. I mean, that's as a consultant, as a consultant, that's what I do is I walk into rooms full of people or organizations and I get them all on the same page and help them understand where they are and where they need to go next. And I help them get there. And you have to create that clarity for them. You can't sit down and, you know, wait until we're all on the same page just because of some magic. Right. Well, I mean, you define or describe two different types of decision-making, what you call alternative-centric decision-making, which is examining alternatives without having a defined objective in mind or objective-centric. And you say, based on your work, that the default methodology is the alternative-centric, which is, hey, let's go talk to a bunch of people or let's have a bunch of conversations. We're not really sure what the final desired outcome is yet, but let's go do that. Yeah, I mean, if you look at what the... The fundamental basic decision-making process, and this was established by Kepner Trago years ago, the first step is what is the decision? Because as I pointed out earlier, sometimes you're making five decisions at once. So step one is really to isolate the decision. Step two is what are we trying to accomplish? What are the objectives? Basically, what are the decision criteria? How will we know a good alternative when we see one? Mm -hmm. So the third step is the alternatives. What What are our options? And then the fourth are the risks. What's going to go wrong with the best alternative we think is the best alternative? What could go wrong there? And inevitably, if you bring up any kind of decision, the default is to go straight to alternatives. Oh, we could do this. We could do that. We could do this. And that's where people start on step three. Yeah. Well, I think that this speaks to what we talked about just a couple seconds ago. Is as, a, as a consultant, as you are really as a seller is you can help the buyer establish what those decision criteria, what those objectives are. Absolutely. In fact, yeah, I like to boil sales down to something really simple, which is that you know, your job is to listen to understand what's the most important thing to the buyer, to understand what's the most important thing to them, and then help them get that. And so they need help defining what that important thing is. They yes. may have an idea but they're looking for your decision, your your input to to help them define what that is, and encompassed in that is still you know what their problem is and and what defined or excuse me desired outcomes are. You know, that's that most important thing. They need your help to do that. Absolutely, and and most people do, and especially groups because groups don't usually get there very fast on their own, especially because they tend to go towards alternatives first. <laughs> but oftentimes, I think sellers start. Default this idea is that the buyer knows exactly what they want. No, 
And yeah, no, that I mean, if you leave them on their own, they're going to do the alternative centric decision making and they're going to talk to a bunch of vendors. You have an opportunity to differentiate yourself by helping them understand what the problem is, how they want to solve it, and what they can achieve with it, and set yeah. yourself apart from, from your competitors. Yeah, and, and by bringing them new information, new options, new ways of thinking, you create a, a different set of potential criteria than yes. they might ever have heard of or thought of. Right, and that's why if you're a seller and you're working with a big customer and they said, look, I at one point, what we're going to do is reduce all this to a, a bid document, submit it to a bunch of competitors, and they release it, and it's all based around your your solution. Right. You did your job. Yep. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Sign on the line. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to look at it just sort of three simple steps, uh, and one that may has two parts to it, but but. Yeah, you know, it's the first thing customers do is they try and decide what the problem is and what the potential outcomes can be. And then the second step is just they'll decide how they want to achieve that. And then the third step is who are you going to do that with? But all the sellers think that it's, since it's you know, so well-defined, they come in and they lead with who, right? That's they pitch, yeah, we're the answer, this is what your problem must be because that's what fits our solution as opposed to helping the customer work through those alternatives and come up with a solid set of objectives. Right. Yeah, and usually the customer doesn't totally understand the problem. They don't understand what the potential outcomes are. Right. So there's usually opportunity for a wonderful discussion there about what they're really feeling. What Because they'd go the same, like um, you said a minute ago about how, you know, the, the goal is to go sell Get, get orders and yeah. um, the customer is also capable of leaping to potential outcomes that aren't necessarily going to be all that helpful. You know, <laughs> they don't necessarily understand what the problem is. And so I think that, and it's not like the customer's wrong. It's not like you're right. It's not like you're wrong, but it's a valuable conversation to get in there and figure out what's the real issue. What do you really want to achieve? Right. And then this is gets a, a, a word that I don't think is a treadmill verb that is important for me is understanding, right? It's, is to sort of transcend just knowing and getting to the point of understanding. And and you talk about this in your writing about clarity of in meetings, right? This is uh, I think you talk about clarity blindness. You call it is yeah, just because a meeting was interesting doesn't mean it was productive. Right. And this, this is something I see time and time again with sellers that have a call with a, a buyer and you ask them afterwards to debrief. So how'd it go? Well, that was great. <laughs> we didn't accomplish anything, but it was fun. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. So, you know, what happened? What's, you know, what's the customer? What do they think happened? And no idea. Yeah. And that, that happens a lot. The, um, the whole idea that if everyone's civil and they stay on topic and we have a good conversation and it's generally interesting and therefore, you know, and it was a good meeting. And in the, in the, in the context of a sales meeting on top of that, we seem to get along. They seem to like us, you know, those things make it a good meeting. Well, no, did you, did you create a list <laughs> of decision criteria that would help move this thing forward? Did you create a list of what the, the problems are? You know, what are they encountering that's causing them trouble? Did you 
identify new ways of thinking that expand their whole horizon. You know, can, you should be able right. to enumerate these things. They're not tangible like a, a, you know, raw materials or parts, but they're concrete cognitive objects that you should be able to point to and enumerate and be sure you agree about the definition of each. Right, and you're saying that this inability to to recognize this lack of outcomes, you call that clarity blindness. Yeah, clarity blindness I use as a general term of just not recognizing how unclear we are. Right. Yeah. So we have we don't see that lack of clarity, that lack of specificity. We don't see the fact that we're not necessarily even talking about the same thing when we're talking to another person. Yeah. Well, this is <laughs> this is so crucial this lack of clarity in selling because to your point, is, is not being focused on outcomes, as, as I believe, and I've written about for a long time, is that there has to be an outcome for every interaction. And the baseline interaction in sales is that the buyer is closer to making a decision after a meeting than they were before. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, and, if, and if you haven't accomplished that, then you wasted their time and wasted right. your own time and that all because of a lack of clarity really right and in order for them to be a step closer my guess is that you needed to learn things about their situation they needed to learn things That's that right. they didn't know coming in about their situation and you ought to have a pretty clear idea going into any conversation what that path looks like right yeah well i i call it you know you need to have what i call a value plan which is you need to understand well, what, what does the buyer need to get from us today? And, it, right. and we'll call it value, but it could be questions, it could be content, it could be in one of many forms, to be, at the end of the meeting, to be closer to making a decision than they were before you got there. It doesn't mean they're leaps and bounds necessarily. It could be, but yeah. it could be just a little bit closer. Right. Yeah, and what you're talking about there is, is process clarity. And I've got a whole chapter on process clarity. Yep. And sometimes the process, like the simple decision process I described, that can be a very standard fixed process. Um, you can go into a customer negotiation. Let's not just make it one meeting, but maybe a series of meetings. And you have a process in mind that's fairly standard. But when mm -hmm. it gets right down to each, each encounter, each interaction, you probably need to tailor a more specific process and you have to be ready to make some adjustments. If you go into a meeting thinking that the customer doesn't really understand oh, a certain type of technology or something, and so your first goal is to teach them that, you have to adjust when it becomes apparent that they know more than you were talking about. But we always have to be conscious of what is that process that moves things forward. Right. I mean, and you talk about this, you, you write that it's, Clarity requires, I think it's a quote here, clarity requires knowing exactly what you're trying to accomplish, not what you're going to do. Yeah. And this, to me, that just sums it up so well that this, this problem that sellers encounter is they've, yeah, they've been trained in this process. This is what we're going to do, but they're not clear about, well, what are we trying to accomplish? Right. We can do the call and we can all talk to each other afterwards and say, well, hey, that was, that was good. Yeah, but what did you accomplish, right? What did the buyer accomplish? Are they closer to making a decision now than they were beforehand? And if they're not, yeah, we didn't go into it understanding what we were trying to accomplish. We just knew it was something we were going to do. That's right. Right. And so it, it, 
what you're going to do is just activity and the sum of a lot of activity is a lot of wasted time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you talk about that with, uh, yeah, certainly with meetings, uh, you touched on it before with, with being too focused on your to-do list. Um, yeah. You also talk about email. Yes. So, yes. so tell us what you think about that. Well, email is great because I, maybe it's a little different for salespeople, but for most people, most of the email is internal and it, it's within your company. And mm -hmm. so it's clearly a, a self-inflicted wound and yet <laughs> it drives us, you know, it, it becomes our other to-do list. But right. even we have even less control over it, obviously, than our actual to-do list where we might write it down or, or you know, make the list ourselves. But what we tend to do with email is, well, first of all, we copy, you know, reply all to everyone way too often. Right. We dive in and start responding without a clear sense of what can this next email accomplish? What, how can we move things forward? And then exactly. only, only then can you decide who needs to be involved or whether an email is the right way to go. Because this, the, the third thing we do that's really bad is that we start an email often guessing about where the other person is at. Mm -hmm. And since we don't know where they are at, we tend to give a lot of background information or a lot of persuasion or we're worried about our credibility. So, I mean, there are so many different factors going around in our heads as we try to build this case that's going to do something. Whereas the reality is the very first step, what's necessary is probably get an answer to one question or to see if they believe one thing. Or, I mean, so a lot of times you can pick up the phone and get that simple answer or send a really short email because you don't need to guess and write this, you know, long involved. And even if it's not long, we waste so much time, time trying to write the perfect email. And I think that's, yeah, I've read Cal Newport's book on email and, and uh, just read a great book uh, by... Juliet Funk called A Minute to Think, which talks about email, the distraction of email. And it's, yeah, I think the problem seems to be one of them is this, you alluded to, is perfectionism, right? Is, is, wow, it's like everybody wants to edit themselves into sort of a perfect state. And perhaps it's one of the attractions of messaging as opposed to email, which is just that they're just going to do it, right? Just yeah. not, not going to compose this, I'm going to send somebody a, a Slack or something. Yeah, where email becomes this beast. Yeah, email is a beast. That's a good word for it. Yeah. And the problem with text messages, they, the problem there can be even worse because we take even less time to think. <laughs> I, we just do. And right. I, I get text messages that are incomprehensible. And, you know, I don't know what the person, first of all, oftentimes they use voice, so that nothing's, they don't even have the right words. <laughs> so it's not transcribed. But, yeah, there's no substitute for knowing what you're trying to accomplish. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it just requires, in general, yeah, going back to a bigger picture, is just, is operating with intent. Right. Right, it's not just going robotically through the day. And if you're in sales, it's just him robotically following this process. Right. It's like, okay, maybe you're getting in your manager's good graces by doing that, but you're not helping yourself. You're not helping your buyer is step back for a second. Think about why are you doing this? Right. right? And you, yeah. you talk about this is, 
look at the things you're doing and say, well, hey, can I build a customer for this? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Can I build them for all the time I spent deleting things in my email box today? <laughs> oh, yeah. But, I mean, there there are some people, and I just saw an example not that long ago on, on LinkedIn is, is – uh, yeah, this this company, and not very few do this, but it is an interesting example. Is hey, you want to learn about our product? Uh, we'll do a consultation. It's you know thousand bucks for half for an hour. As a buyer, you're going to pay a thousand bucks to learn about the product. Um, yeah, if you have that much value, not a bad way to go. But it's, it's just maybe an extreme case to think about this idea: is that what are you doing during your day that's just sort of wasting time? Is what value does it have for your buyers? And if it doesn't. Or for you, in terms of helping your buyers make decisions, why are you doing it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be thinking in terms of tangible outcomes. And you use the word intent. I like that word. But I also I use the word specificity. And I think you need to be sure your intentions are very specific. Yes. Yes. And I think that's really critical. But if you are very specific about what you are trying to accomplish, what's the next step? What will be different when we are done with this next step or this mm-hmm. meeting? Right. It's very solid and, and adds up to real progress as you make these steps. Um, that makes a huge difference. And in order to do it, you have to have this process clarity. You have to be aware of the, the process you're following. And I don't mean, you know, a big, long, prolonged process like your whole sales process. When I mean process, I mean, you know, the next hour. What are yeah. the steps during the next hour that are going to get us to this next outcome? Yeah. And you oh, agree, hundred percent. Yeah. When I and just as over the last point, I wanted to touch on because we had so circled it a little bit earlier. Is because we talk about sort of the mindset people have, the the hat that they act, they think they're putting on, assuming these roles, and what comes with that is a certain vocabulary. And we talk this idea of treadmill verbs. So I just want to touch on that again because when people listening think about, well, yeah probably all guilty of using this this passive language that suffers from, as you call it, disclarity, because it's just too broad. So let's talk about treadmill verbs. What yeah, are- let's start. Treadmill verbs is a, it's a term I coined for words like report and review and communicate and share and inform. The words that just, you know, fill up our meetings and our mm-hmm. agendas. And the problem is, is that those verbs, they're like getting on a treadmill where you can you can, on a treadmill, you know, you can walk forever, you can walk another mile, you can walk or run another 10 minutes. Well, the same is true of reviewing and reporting and communicate. You can report forever. There's mm-hmm. no destination. You can review forever. There's no way to know when you're done. There's no, you know, you never get to the lake shore. You never get to the mountaintop. Right. So to me, those treadmill verbs, every one of them is an open invitation to talk without purpose. Right. And... That's we, the way we talk. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, it gets back to what we talked about at the beginning. It's like, what are we afraid of, right? What, what are we afraid of in terms of being precise? Yeah. Are we going to hurt somebody's feelings? Uh, are well, we gonna think, people are going to think we're too forward? We're asking for too much? I, I think on the other hand, people appreciate the clarity. I think it's just a, a, also a, they don't appreciate it. They don't understand that they've got clarity blindness. They don't understand or recognize how unclear they are. They don't realize they're talking about five decisions at once. And actually, um, it, I w- was at a company once when Kepner Trago came in and trained people on decision making and, and problem solving and planning. And 
it, the the training was really good. It was it was all good material. I still refer to their SOAR process. That's what I use mm-hmm. decisions. But the problem is, is that people didn't know when to use it because they don't recognize that we are making a decision now. It's like we make so many decisions, we don't right. stop and say, "Wait a minute, what is the decision we're making?" And then let's follow a process to do it. Right. And so they don't stop. And I I found with the Kepner Trago because the decisions are also embedded in planning and decisions are embedded in problem solving, people got really confused about, well, which of the three are we doing? It's like, (laughs) this isn't really hard, but if you never think in terms of cognitive processes as being processes, Mm -hmm. you never stop and go, what do we know? Wait, we are making a decision now. What is that decision? Right. And usually, it's actually what I call cascading decisions. There's this whole slew of decisions. But if you are if you are a little bit disciplined and stop and identify those, instead of mushing them all together and trying to make ten decisions at once, you can make them one at a time. And boy, does life get easy that way. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, instead of mush them together and make ten all at once, I mean, the, the issue is really more that. You put those ten together, you think it's just one decision. It's still ten right. decisions. It's still ten decisions. And this is this is the part the sellers overlook is that, yeah, there are ten decisions. It's not just one. You're yeah. focused on getting the one, and you're missing the ball with with working on with intent and moving people forward one small decision at a time. Right. Yes. Well, Anne, well, thank you very much for joining me. We've run out of time. If people want to connect with you and learn more about your book, what's the best way to do that? Go to annelatham.com, or for the book, it's powerofclarity.com with hyphens okay. um, and the book is available in all places books are sold uh, it's uh, been out there for a month already and um, it, it's uh, you can also get to it off annlatham.com so it's easy to find. alright well Anne well, thank you very much thank you very much Andy it's been good nice talking to you okay friends that's it for this episode first of all I want to thank you for taking the time to listen I'm ever so grateful for your support of the show And I want to thank my guest, Ann Latham, for sharing her insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for your help with that. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales. We're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, We generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.